From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. In celebration of this week's Oscar nominations announcement, we're looking back to the New York premieres of two films in the running. Both Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird and Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name received several nominations, including Best Picture. They premiered here in the 55th New York Film Festival last October, and the directors answered questions from critics and members of the press before their public screenings. Let's go now to our conversation with Greta Gerwig, followed by our conversation with Luca Guadagnino. Hey, when did you first start developing this, um, this film? Uh, I mean, in your head. In my head. Yeah. Well, it's always a little hard to know exactly how long it takes me to write something because I'm constantly writing, and then I don't know what pieces will become something. But what I do know is that I, I have a draft, a very long draft of this movie um, from the end of December of t- 2013. So, so at least at least a couple years. <laughs> um, so you honed it down. How long is a long draft? Like, um, that was about 300? 350 pages. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot more dances. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A long draft screenplay or a long draft treatment prose? Uh, screenplay. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, it was... Uh, and I mean, some of the scenes didn't go anywhere. It wasn't like... It wasn't like 350 pages of something that was um, narratively cohesive. It was 350 pages of stuff that then I um, kind of looked at and figured out what felt essential and what felt like the core of the story to me. Um, And I don't really decide what a core of a story is before I write. I I write to figure out what the story is. and I think that the characters end up talking to you and telling you what they want to be doing and what, what is important to them. And then, so in some ways, your job is to listen as much as to write and to listen to what these characters that are listen coming through you are, are, are telling you. Yeah. And at what point did you, did you have Saoirse Ronan in mind um, at a certain point? Well, I never had her in mind. I didn't have her in mind while I was writing, but... Um, in 2015, I met her actually at the Toronto Film Festival. She had read the script and she really um, responded to it. And I was going to be there with Maggie's plan and she was going to be there with Brooklyn. And we met and we sat in her hotel room and she read all of Lady Bird's lines and I read everybody else's lines. And I knew within the first two pages that she was Ladybird and that she had the part, but then I just selfishly wanted to hear it all out loud, said by her. <laughs> and um, yeah, she was, you know, she's, so, she's such an incredible actress, I really can't say enough about her. Um, and, but she, she, there was something about the way she did it, that was, it was instantly different than how I had heard it in my head, and so much better, so much more unique and specific to her, and she has a quality of being always emotionally at a 10, which made it that much funnier because it was all out of a place of sincerity. She never played the joke with quotes around it. She always played it from from the inside Mm -hmm. and and it made everything vivid in a way that I 
I had always hoped for, but you just never know that you're going to find the exact person who's going to be able to capture that. And she just instantly did. Why did you have Lady Bird um, saying everybody says don't from Anyone Can Whistle? I'm a big Sondheim fan, oh. so this is tailor-made for me. Yes. <laughs> I, I, too, am a big Sondheim fan, clearly. Um, and uh, I, I've just... I've always loved that song, um, and I thought that it it spoke to, uh, to 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 where her character was at that point of um, of always feeling like everywhere she turned she couldn't she couldn't move, um, and and also as 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 soon as I heard her sing it she was just she was just so um, funny and committed and she was actually listening a lot to a. <laughs> There's that Barbara Streisand made a recording of that song, and it's a really great recording. And so she was listening to different versions, but she was listening to that version. And then, so in a way, this is her channeling Barbara, which I, that's enough to make a movie. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Lori Metcalf in this film because she has been an icon of American culture. I mean, like, go for me going back to Roseanne, but I mean, just an incredible actress and never really has gotten the chance to just like grab a hold of something and knock it out of the park. Was, was she in your mind during the development process of this or was it just sort of a fortuitous accident? But tell us, tell us about Lori. Yeah. Oh, uh, Lori, I mean really all of the actors in the film, I could just, I'm so blessed and they are so wonderful. And Lori in particular, um, I, I, knew, I knew I wanted an actor who, could could hit a home run that felt like um, it felt like exciting and it felt like a discovery. Even though she's to anyone who's been paying attention, she's not a discovery. But I felt like I just kn I knew that she had this enormous power and this enormous uh, skill set and empathy and everything she brings to uh, the characters she plays. And I had known her; I'd seen her on stage. Um, I think more than anything else. And I I felt like I loved the theater when I saw her and I thought I've, n I've never in my life seen anything like that unfold in front of me and so um, it, when we were thinking about the, the part I, it was I had already written the script um, and uh, we we t as soon as she, her name came up as a possibility I thought yeah I mean she's a genius if she does if she wants to do this um, and we talked on the phone and she was um, She's she is a bit like a great athlete. The the you you have to see it. Like she 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 doesn't she didn't need to like spend a lot of time going on about the character or anything like that. She just said, "I think that this is something I I need to do." And sometimes things come into your life at the right moment. And at that moment, she she told me and she she said it publicly. So it's not. She said, "I have currently a 17-year-old child who's trying to kill me." So I think, I think this is exactly what I need to be doing right now. Um, and, and she was just, I mean, working with her was, was extraordinary. And I, I learned so much from her. And getting to watch her and Saoirse work together, it was like, it was like a matchup of, 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 of two greats. And um, each one of them could had had different different things had different ways of getting into it, but when they were in scenes together, it was like watching two heavyweights. 
And she and Tracy Letts had worked together in theater. No. Well, actually, interestingly, um, Lori and Tracy Letts had both, um, Tracy and Lori both were from the Midwest, and they both, uh, Lori was a founding member of the Steppenwolf Theater Company, and Tracy is worked there as an actor, and also a lot of his plays have premiered there, and he's, and he's very much a Chicago actor and writer. And, but they'd never actually acted together. They'd known each other for like 30 years, and they'd never actually acted together. But I felt like there was something about the intimacy that they had, that they, they knew each other from before, that it was like, that it, it gave it a kind of reality and a depth that, um, that it's, it's hard to achieve on the fly. But they, they, and they also, I like that they were, they were Midwestern. It felt closer to what I, I what I believe Sacramento feels like than something uh, flashy and, and um, you know, like LA. Hey, Greta, you're one of our greatest actresses, and here you're like this astounding writer and a director. <laughs> what are you gonna do next? <laughs> I mean, in which direction? You know, uh, it's 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 mind blowing. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I. Um, You're working on a symphony. I'm working. No. Yes, I'm moving into opera <laughs> next. Um, uh, no, I'm I'm I, I I mean, what I've always wanted to do is direct, and I felt I didn't go to film school proper film school. I went to um, Barnard College for Women uptown, and um, and I felt like I I've worked in film. Um, when I started production on this, I'd been working in film for 10 years and I'd done sort of every job that I could do and I, I was lucky enough to act a lot and be on a lot of great directors' sets and um, I had written, I had co-written, I had held the boom, I had edited, I had costumed, I had applied powder and um, I, I felt like I was using that in a way to gather my 10,000 10, hours or you know, whatever the Malcolm Gladwell's requirement is. And, um, and when I finished the script, I was like, you've always wanted to do this. You're not gonna get any more information. You've just gotta jump. You've gotta go, you gotta go do it. And, um, and I, I loved doing it. It was a very wonderful experience of making the film. And I, I hope I continue to be able to act on with in projects that I love with directors that I admire and and now that I've torn the 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 bandit off I think uh, I'm going to keep making movies I'm going to keep writing and directing films so uh, hopefully continuing to do all of it. Uh, hey Greta, um, you are a wonderful actress as well. So just tagging on the previous question, as a writer and director on this, uh, how was the temptation to? you know, take the part or be put yourself in and uh, your process of working with actors as an actor yourself? Um, well, I, I never imagined myself in, in this film. I always, I, I, there wasn't a part for me. And also, I really very much wanted to be on the, on the other side of it. I wanted to be, I, it sounds absurd to say just a director, um, but I wanted to not, I, I wanted to not act in this, um, and I, I, but I do feel that working as an actor for so many reasons is such good training for directing. One of which is that you, most directors only ever 
only ever are on their own sets. <laughs> they don't actually know how anyone else does it. And I've been, on a, I've been on a lot of sets, and I've seen a lot of different ways of working and a lot of different ways of relating to actors and crew, and I've sort of seen what works and what doesn't work. And I, I took all these ideas that I'd been gathering over the years, and they could be as little as things like having your crew wear name tags every day, which sounds small, but actors actually, if you switch out, you know, a uh, camera operator, and they don't know who the new person is, and you know because you've talked to them, but they don't know. And it's like that, I stole that from Mike Mills um, on 20th Century Women, and so I felt like that was helpful. And then I just, my greatest joy is, is working with actors and watching, and watching them bring life to these things that I've put on the page that are essentially dead until they bring their spirit and their artistry to it. So I, I adore them and I think they know that and, um, and, I, and I have a lot of empathy for what I'm asking of them because I've been there and it's hard. It's hard and um, I try to bring sensitivity to it. Hi, thanks Greta. Um, I was, I was wondering if you could speak to some of the, the uh, autobiographical nature of the movie and um, just if there was anything from the coming of age experience that you wanted to capture in this that maybe you felt like you hadn't seen before in other films. Um, well, and nothing in the movie lit literally happened in my life, but it, it, it has a core of truth that resonates with, um, with what I know. Um, I think that I, I really wanted to make a movie that was a reflection on, on home and what does home mean and how does leaving home define what it is for you and your love for it. And I felt like, you know, it was a love letter to Sacramento. Um, and I felt like what, what better way to make a love letter than through somebody who wants to get out and then realize that they loved it. And it, it felt like it was also, it was a movie that was framed around, um, you know, you follow, you follow these, this family and this world and this people, and in a way it's secretly the mother's movie, um, as much as it is Lady Bird's movie, and that that was the core relationship, and I felt like I wanted that catch where you realize, oh no, this is a love letter to the place, and it's also the mother's story. And I think that that was the thing that I wanted that kind of like reversal to happen, because I think that's the truth of no, you, somebody's coming of age is somebody else's letting go. And, and, and I was just as interested in the letting go as I was of, uh, of the young people's stories. Yeah, really, the other night, uh, Michael Shannon was here, another film, and he was talking about growing up in Kentucky. He said, yeah, I really love Kentucky, and I really don't love Kentucky. <laughs> and so it's both at the same time in Lady Bird, I think. Retta, your film is also about class um, in a very interesting way that you don't see that often in American films. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Sure. Um, well, I think that, uh, you know, I think we're very, class is a very difficult thing in America. I think, uh, I mean, one of my favorite filmmakers is, is um, Mike Lee, and, um, and, and, and he's British, and I think in, you know, in, Brit in, in the British class system is very clear of who's, who's where, and I think in America we all it's something like 95% of people describe themselves as, as being middle class. And that's people who fall in the end of the poverty spectrum and also at the very top. That we, 
I'm very uncomfortable with, um, with, with class and, and how that works, but I think it's something that, it's an invisible force that shapes a lot of people's lives. And I've always thought of it as kind of, um, that it's something that, uh, life is not fair and resources are not divided fairly, either in talents or, or, or in, in economics. And I think it's something that, um, I think one thing that I wanted to explore is, you know, ladybirds always looking up at, at, at other people, at people she thinks have more and have it all together. And meanwhile, those people are looking up at other people and she also doesn't see how much she has because in a culture of more, 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 and I always need to get to the next level, level that there's no way that you can appreciate what you have. And she, it's, and I think, you know, it's not explicitly stated, but I would guess that her best friend, Julie, looks up to her and thinks, well, she's got it. She's, it's perfect. She's got a house, got two parents. She's okay. And I'm, the, you know, and I think that it's that, that disease that of, of always looking up and never being where you are combined with the way these things are very real and they're very untalked about. Um, it's something I wanted to explore and have, have a reality to. Um, has your family seen the movie? Yes, yes. I, um, my family actually, my parents came with me to um, Telluride Film Festival. I'd shown them the movie before and then um, they, were very, they were very kind and very wonderful and they showed up and they supported me. And my mother just called me and said, I just want to tell you I love you. I know you're very busy. <laughs> and I said, I, I am, but I love you. <laughs> so, um, no, they were, very, they were very touched. Hi. I was wondering if the 2002 post-9-11 setting was something, um, an autobiographical decision, or and if you could speak more on that. Sure. Um, well, I, I had actually graduated a, a little earlier than I set the film. I did want it to be in a post-9-11 post world at the beginning of when we were starting our invasion into Iraq and while the Afghanistan war was already going, because I felt like this, this huge thing happened and then we were ushered into a new age of global politics almost instantly everything was shifting and it was and we knew it was shifting but it was also in a way invisible i, I you know and and the it, it, i think that there's there's a sense sometimes in movies that it's it's like your your personal life happens over here and politics happens over there but that's not the way anybody lives everything goes together you're living through the historical moment you're living through at the same time as you're dealing with your children or your work or your, your, your house or whatever, whatever is going on in your life. And I just, I, I thought that it was this, this thing this, that was coming through and coming up and it was like the beginning of, you know, not just this geopolitical moment but also like the internet and cell phones and all of this stuff which which now defines everything. And it, a glib answer I've used and I have is that like, to make a movie about teenagers now, you have to shoot cell, cell phones. Um, and, and so much of their life happens online and I don't think it's very cinematic. And it felt like this in a weird way was kind of like the last generation you could make a film about without doing that. Without showing shots of computer screens yeah, and, and cell phones. And like the, 
the made-up Facebook that's not Facebook. Right. But <laughs> yeah, I hate or like the Google that's like giggle. <laughs> and you're like, I know that that's not real. Um, mm -hmm. um, we have to wrap it up, but thanks everybody and thanks, Greg. Oh, thank you, Great. thank you. Thank you. I will start with a few questions before opening it up um, to the press. Uh, maybe you could just begin by telling us about how you came to be involved with, um, with this project. The novel by um, Andre Asiman was published maybe 10 years ago, and I think the, the f it was being developed as a film for quite some time, um, and maybe in a, even in the previous iteration before you came to be attached as, as the director. I've been uh, approached by Peter Spears, uh, who is uh, uh, with our Rosman, the original producer of this film that kept uh, uh, nurturing this movie until now, uh, because the, uh, they were developing a script from the book by Asiman a year later, and because the book is set in Italy, they wanted to have my uh, opinion on uh, the where's, the whereabouts, the hows, to make a movie there. Uh, they were from here. Uh, so I started, I started from reading the book, which I found endearing and beautiful, and then I received the script a few months later, and I started to give was a... It, was it a James Ivory script No, no, point? no, it was no. a script by another writer um, who was supposed to be the director of the version that he wanted to make. And uh, we started by going uh, um, scouting with Peter and with the director, and uh, we, we understood the book was set in Liguria, for instance, which is... A, uh, the north, the north, northest side of uh, seaside of Italy, on the side of France, uh, Bordighera is the town, and then year after year the movie was uh, 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 happening until it never happened because it was very difficult to put it together. So uh, we lost our director. We looked for other directors. We were approaching many other other people, and. Uh, um, and then from a position as a consultant, I've been, um, uh, my rank went up into this movie. I started to be a, an executive producer, then I was asked to be a producer, and we were really trying to make this happen. And, and um, Ivory was always part of the project because James and, and Peter, they knew one another, and I knew our, uh, James before, so we, it was a sort of uh, godfather of the project. And one day he came to see me in my house in Crema, which is the same place where we shot the film, same area. And, uh, and we, we, we said to ourselves, one another, why don't we try to see how we would do this film? So we tried uh, ourselves on the script. And, uh, and then a few years later, again, the movie was very difficult to put together. There weren't so many sources of finance. And, uh, Finally, together with uh, uh, Memento in France and RT in Brazil, uh, we, um, we uh, found a way to make this movie happen for a teeny tiny budget and for me to direct, which was uh, something I was resisting very, very, very strongly through the years. Why? I don't know. I, I, I wanted to explore a little bit more the world. I've been doing many movies in Italy at the time. But at the same time, there was something very strong to me about these characters, and I wanted, in a way, um, I was resisting something that I, I felt I knew, possibly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a very laborious and long process. Um, I'm interested 
interested to hear you describe it. You know, something you felt, you knew. Um, we, I think we've we've seen a lot of films and read a lot of books about first love and sexual awakening, even even queer sexual awakening. Um, but I'm wondering what it was about this story, um, this novel, um, that made it. I don't know, different for you, or, or, what would, or is this something different that you wanted to do in, in making a film like this? We've seen, I think, the bare bones of the story before, but um, I, I think there is a certain... Well, I, 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 I don't know how to put it, because I don't want to sound neither pompous nor pretentious, so it's a, it's a very difficult one, but I will be honest, because New Yorkers are very direct. Um, <laughs> I... I always found myself restless uh, as an audience member toward the films that tell that tells the coming of age that are uh, hinging and, and they are basically um, relying on the um, on the on the cliche on what is the assumption that a narrative has to deliver in order to get there and uh, and there is always the, the were, they were the, the, the cliché for every generation. And for, the, for those majority of clichéd films, there are the standouts. And like this, in a snap, come back to my mind, Rebel Without a Cause by Nick Ray, of course. But there was one that was very, very, very dear to me. And it's uh, Anos Amour, to, the, to our loved one by Maurice Piala. What is great about Piala cinema is the capacity that he has always had to really uh, avoid the traps of a narrative and to be very at the center of his characters and to really be letting leave uh, the, flesh, the flesh and bone and blood and sperm and, and, and every other, other kind of biological fluids of these characters in a way that is really connected to an audience because we are like the people in the screen. So I would say and that's where my arrogance shows up, I wanted to prove myself that I could tell the story from the perspective of someone like Piala instead of the perspective of uh, a three-act script. Are there specific cliches um, that you think are endemic to this coming-of-age genre that you wanted to avoid or subvert? Or? Uh, I think, for instance, that uh, um, the idea that there is a contrast uh, against the lovers is something that is so artificial, you know? That there has to be somebody who's going to contrast them, like, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then the love will, will triumph, right. you know? And in the gay, in the gay canon, uh, it will triumph, or maybe it will be bittersweet, or it will, be, or it will not triumph, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. I think, yeah, I think there's something quietly kind of radical about the fact that there are no, like, social forces aligned against the characters, you know, there's, you, you, you really what they're, the only thing they're really fighting are their, their own impulses and, and time uh, in, in, in some way. And um, uh, I think that also allows you to really focus on, on the, the nuances, um, the very particular nuances of um, desire and, and how that takes shape, which is very, um, this is what I wanted to ask you about, the, um, just adapting the language of the book, which is so, um, precise about that, but it's also a first-person uh, narration in the book, and it's also a book that's narrated from uh, some point in the future. It's it's narrated through like a haze of, of memory, looking back. And I'm wondering if you you know when talk about turning that voice, that first-person backward-looking voice, in, into 
language of a film? Well, the book uh, uh, was a sort of uh, is a, a Proustian book uh, about remembering uh, things past uh, and uh, and uh, indulging into a, a, a sort of into the age of the melancholy of lost things. I would say, I felt uh, that was beautiful, but I at the same time. Um, I, I felt that the, uh, the, a movie in, in present time would have been much more uh, efficient and strong in, in relaying, <clears throat> in making an audience to be in the shoes of these characters. <clears throat> uh, also, I, I personally dislike the idea of a voiceover of, a first, of, 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 the, of, of your main character telling you the story retrospectively, because in a way it's uh, something that uh, kills the surprise. I like in cinema when you have an, an omniscient narrator, like Mary Lyndon, for instance, that is something that fascinates me a lot. And in fact, I wanted to have that here. We drop it almost close to the picture locked, the idea of having that. And in a way, the narrator <coughs> became Sufjan Stevens with these uh, new songs made from now, from our contemporarity, of a story that is back. Did you give him, um, you mentioned these are sort of new songs by Sufjan Stevens. Um, did you give him any particular direction as to what you, what you wanted? Or? Well, no, no. I think that the direction was to ask him to do it because it's Sufjan Stevens. Uh, I want to ask you about one, one more collaborator before we, we open it up. Um, your cinematographer, uh, Sayambu Mukdipram, um, who people might know shot um, Miguel Gomez's Arabian Nights and also worked closely with Apichapong. So somebody who I think is very uh, conversant with the natural world and with light. And, and this, is, this was your first film working with It was with my him. second film as a producer because he had made a movie that I, did, uh, that I produced called Antonia mm -hmm. by Ferdinando Cito Filomarino. That's how we got to meet uh, Sion Boo. And those are the ways of cinema because Ferdinando loved uh, Apichapong's films. And then when I asked him, who do you like to work with as a DP? And he said to meet this guy, and we contacted him, and uh, then the Ferdinando and uh, um, Sion Bumet, and they basically fall in love with one another, and he came to make this movie, which was his first non-Thai um, uh, film ever. And then while we were doing Antonia, uh, our uh, production designer was uh, uh, Bruno Duarte, who was the production designer of uh, Miguel Gomes, and then he went to do um, the Miguel Gomes film. Um, but the, our relationship with Sion uh, uh, was so exquisite and extraordinary and his capacity of uh, uh, creating an atmosphere and at the same time understanding the characters was so astonishing that I had to beg Ferdinando to allow me to call Sion because he was very jealous of his relationship and finally he said, okay, go ahead. And I approached him and he came and it's interesting that you say that he's working that he has a very strong sensitivity of the natural light, which is true, but funny enough, uh, we wanted to have this kind of uh, scorching summer's heat in the film, but uh, the film was, uh, uh, the process was really plagued, you say plagued? Plagued by heavy rains that lasted almost for the entirety of the shoot, so he created the light completely artificially. It's a complete artificial light that tried to recreate a Lombardian summer light from a Thailandese perspective. All right, um, we'll take some questions. Uh, we have mic runners. Um, yes. Thank you. It actually brought back a very lost memory for me watching the film. So I think that that's 
the highest compliment I can give to a filmmaker. A uh, gentleman here is asking to elaborate about the usage of music in the movie, and uh, in particular the score and the uh, relationship between that score and, and Sufjan Stevens as a contemporary American artist to this film. Um, um, I, um, uh, the, the, the idea of the, of the soundtrack started from two uh, important uh, guidelines. One was, Elio is a pianist, he's a young pianist in the making, he may become a genius pianist af afterwards. He plays and likes to transcribe music and adapt pieces that were not for piano for piano. And uh, in particular, he does that with the back piece that he, he teases Oliver with. Um, uh, so we wanted to be very close to him. We wanted to be very close to Elio. And so we didn't want to have the usage of music that was a sort of commentary on the images, but more something that could uh, spurt out of Elio himself. And so we thought of uh, being very uh, consistent in being close to the period of time, 1983, the kind of family, American, French, Italian, the level of education of the people, and uh, the kind of canon they would have to be part of. So we went from the, uh, let's say, um, uh, early uh, 20th century classics of Ravel and Debussy that in a way represent the uh, curiosity of, of, of experiment that Elio himself embodies in his way of being, to the most, uh, let's say, aggressive uh, uh, minimalism of John Adams that I've been working with his music for a long time already now, but uh, it in a way was uh, that kind of hecticity was very s similar to me, to the way um, I felt, for instance, Timothy Chalamet performance was un unrolling on screen. Uh, at the same time, the second guideline was like, what is the sound of the summer? What uh, is the radio, TV, uh, what is playing? So we, we made the, our inquiries, we made our research, also not only personal, but also based on what we knew that 1983 summer was bringing in the radios, and we selected the pieces that were really consistent to that moment of time. And uh, I, as I said before, we wanted to have a sort of narrator that could have made justice of the idea of the, move, of the book being uh, drawn by the narrative of Elio, but we wanted something that wasn't as close to, as, as in first person. And, uh, and I felt the Sufjan um, uh, lyrics, lyricism, both in the music and in the voice and the lyrics itself, uh, had some beautiful elusiveness on one hand and on the other hand poignancy that were really resonant. In fact, when I approached him, and he's a very, uh, he's, a very uh, he's an artist who is not uh, somebody um, I mean, he's very private, he's very re re reserved person and as artist. So I, I, it was quite of a challenge for, to, to see if he wanted to play with us. And eventually when he did say yes, his tools were the script, the book, our conversation about the characters, and I would say his own uh, source of inspirations. And he sent us, I wanted one song and he gave us two, Visions of Gideon, which is the one that closes the movie and Mystery of Love. And there was this beautiful futile devices that he's some, I think it's from Chicago, the, the album, I think, that uh, we asked him to remake with piano to be close to Elio. I loved the costume design. I thought it, on the one hand, it was extremely accurate. The parents' clothes would all be hanging in my parents' closet. 
Uh, and at the same time, um, Elio's clothes are, are so nicely between boy and man. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the costumes? Thank you. I will, I will tell this to Giulia Persanti, the costume designer. Uh, it was very important for us that for the movie not to look period, and for the movie not to look, uh, in a way, a reflection on the 80s, uh, uh, the way usually cinema does uh, when it becomes period. You know, like, it's very difficult to uh, resist the temptation of uh, thinking of a period uh, from our perspective, and to say, okay, our idea of the 80s, I mean, you see, you see for instance, uh, um, a masterpiece of all times that is uh, 2001 and we can't deny the fact that there is a lot of courage and that there is a lot of 60s uh, um, futuristic fashion in the way Kubrick and his team put together the idea of 2001. In fact, 2001 wasn't like that when we got there finally. Um, uh, so, uh, and I respect that, I like that, I like that. Another way of making a costume design that is a striking and astonishing is like what Milena Canonero did with Dick Tracy the idea of the cartoon 40s and Hollywood was fantastic. But what I prefer for myself is to be invisible, to really try to, uh, uh, which is probably the greatest of the artifices, to reconstruct something that is not anymore, but try to be as close to what was it. So we had a lot of research. One thing we did, Crema is a very small village, so we found the possibility to enter in other people's houses and they gave us their pictures of their, their 80s. So we had like a big, big book, and we, we discovered a lot. For instance, not all the ladies had big shoulders. Not all the ladies had big hair. This is something that is became a sort of a canon of the 80s representation, but that's not exactly how it was. And again, the Maurice Piala film was also a great guide, because that is a 1983 film. Um, yeah, I like him, in, in talking about Coffee I like very much how Julia did indicate where Elio is going at the very end of the movie with this kind of uh, a new romantic look. Right? It was a very, 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 very beautiful. And, and you know, like sometimes when you work in a movie and you have like 50 people around you, everyone has their own film. And when she came with this uh, shirt full of faces looking here and there, I really found beautiful because uh, she found this idea that was very strong for him. It was very strong and it helped me, Timmy, to put that last image together. The significance of the physical ailments and vulnerabilities that where he fell and he was wounded on his side and it seemed to be prolonged, the healing, and then how Elio had the nosebleed and he vomited. So the, what, what was the significance of putting that? Well, I'm a very shy person when it comes to talk about significance in my films, and I think it's a big sin of any director to try to explain what he or she wants to do. I think, so to be coy, I would say that, uh, you know, the kid is uh, all over the places. So he falls, he bleeds, he has a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, the body is really going everywhere. I, le I read many years ago a book by Jean-François Dolto, called Adolescence, which she said something interesting because she said the body of an adolescent is a body that is, is in the making. I mean, we age, but the body of an adolescent is really going everywhere and the person doesn't know where it's going. I like that. So I think that uh, possibly the answer. I think there was the lady. Thank you. 
Can you talk about casting Army and Timothy? Um, what did you see in each of those actors that you felt resembled their characters most? And did you do a chemistry test to see if they got on? Well, I, I, I think the place where I found, uh, when I, where I saw them for this, where it was me. Because I met uh, uh, Timmy a few years while I was still producing the film, and, and Brian Swarstrom, who is the agent of Timothy and also a friend of the court, as they say here, um, he said, we should meet, because this young man is fantastic. And we did meet, and I really felt immediately that he had the ambition, the intelligence, the sensitivity, the naivety, and the, and the artistry to be Elio. And in fact, I kept having a, uh, a relationship with him through the years. And then when I decided that I was doing the movie, I, I called him and we had our final conversation, which was the beginning of everything in a way. So, and, I, and I fall for him. And then uh, for Army, the same. Like I saw him in the social network. I think that was where we all got aware of him. Then I followed his movies. I found that, for instance, he was fantastic in The Lone Ranger an unlucky film that I really appreciated. And uh, I, I, he was the portrait he made of the lover of J. Edgar Hoover in J. Edgar was beautiful. So I met him and I, and I, and I, I would say I found the two men playing the roles capable of showing fragility. And I think that is important. For the chemistry, I don't do chemistry tests. I don't do auditions at, as well. I felt I was cool with them, so I, I thought uh, arrogantly enough that they were going to be cool between one another. Ciao Luca, Sara Fruner, La Voce di New York. Thank you very much, I appreciate. It was, I think there's the right balance of desire, passion, languor, and excruciating grief in the movie. So I, I appreciated that. My question is about your relationship to Italy, because it's recognized that you are recognized more abroad than in Italy. And I was wondering if it's Italy that is ungrateful towards you, and that's a shame, or if you find oxygen, let's say, outside you know, Italy, or you know, your relation to your country. I was a very restless kid. And when I did my first movie, uh, the protagonist, sorry, the protagonists, um, I remember I had a conversation with Tilda Swinton, who I work with a lot of times, and I did my following movie as well. And, she, and I asked her, oh, did you like the script? Uh, so what do you think of the movie? What do you think is going to come up out of it? And she said to me, she was always very wise. She's really the ancient one. So she said to me, I think it's, it's, it's a question of time. And I don't think things happen in time, in, in the time you feel things should happen. They happen when they have to happen. So to answer your question, uh, I, I am proudly Italian, as much as I'm proudly Algerian, because my mother is Algerian. And I am also proud of uh, understanding and being curious of the world. And uh, yeah, that's it. I, I uh, interviewed uh, James Ivory about two years ago, and he said he was planning to make the film, um, and I wondered what, what uh, happened with, with that and how you came to make it, and also um, 
how do you think your film compares with how he would have brought his own script to life? Well, you know, the, the, the ways of cinema are always very uh, cruel, complicated, difficult, uh, uh, merciless, and uh, among uh, the uh, unfairness of life, there is also the one in which we couldn't put together the movie directed by James Ivory, because it was a much more costly film, it was a different film that didn't meet the uh, standards of the market. I have to be blunt, that's it. And in fact, uh, he was very generous when Peter went to him and said, it's very difficult. Actually, it's impossible. We tried very hard. But there is a possibility to make a tiny, teeny version of the same film if Luca does it, something that requires less money and less time. I mean, shooting time. Would you bless the choice? And he said, sure. Because he wrote the script, but we wrote it together. We've been together. So I, I knew the script by heart. Uh, how would he, I don't know, I mean, uh, I think we are completely different uh, directors, I think for many reasons. He's American, um, and I'm Italian, um, different generations. Definitely I've been influenced very strongly by his and Merchant uh, and Ruth Prawe Javala canon, which is fantastic. Many of these films they made were really fantastic. Not only the ones that we have closer to us in, in the timeline, but also the ones in the 60s. Um, I think they are very different. Uh, for uh, to being a bit uh, cinephiliac, I would say that my approach is more French. We can take one final question. So, um, yes. Thank you. It's a beautiful film, and I'm interested to know what some of your favorite love stories on film have been? Uh, I think that uh, I would say two movies, uh, uh, three movies. One is Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock, which is The Morbidity of Love. The second one is La Talente by Jean Vigo, which I think played recently in New York, right? We're showing it this afternoon, actually. Amazing film, like really amazing. And congratulations for the showing. And the third one is a, a Voyage to Italy by Roberto Rossellini. I mean, those are the three that comes off in my mind right now, but there are many. Thank I'm you. Afraid that's all we have time for, but Luca, thank you so much. Thank you yeah. so much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.